Good morning. As Blake said, my name is Kevin Perry, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor for shepherding here at New Eden. And I'm not the one who normally preaches. That's normally Joel. He, Joel McCarty, is our pastor for preaching and oversight. But I am very glad that I have this opportunity this morning. As I read through this passage, we have a teaching team meeting um, every week, and we try to stay two weeks ahead of what uh, is actually coming up. And so in talking about this, we all were kind of noting that every bit of this is just red letters, right? I mean, this is just Christ talking. Um, there is no narrative. There's not a story involved. There's not anything else going on other than Christ just speaking. So uh, I only half joking told Joel, uh, you know, look, I don't know that I can improve in any way on what Christ has to say. So maybe I should just get up and say amen. And then we move on to communion and finishing out with song. All right. But I just pray that if there's anything of God that you hear this morning, that it sticks with you forever. And I pray that if there's anything that you hear that doesn't line up with God, that it would be forgotten before you leave this place. I had the double blessing of being reared by a father who understood that I would imitate him, that whatever I saw in him, I was going to do. And so he modeled for me in action what he spoke to me in words. I realized that many did not have this in their life, and I don't take this blessing for granted. But watching my father led me to a very uh, a truth that has stuck with me. Much more is caught than taught. What we see those in front of us doing is going to make much more of impact than what we hear people say. As we rear our children, as we work alongside others, as we grow as a family here at New Eden, as we seek to be a part of what we say, the flourishing of Decatur for the good of the world and the glory of God. I pray that we realize that what we model with our lives is going to be around a whole lot longer than what we say with our mouth. So our passage in John is Jesus' declaration that in His and His Father's relationship, He always magnifies what His Father spoke. It is never going to be uh, untrue. Jesus uses three truly I tell you statements declarations in which he answers these Jews who were persecuting and trying to kill him. And so theologians uh, have dug and mined these verses for years and years, and they are foundational to our faith. Now, we seldom use truly, truly before we say something anymore. Some old uh, translations actually say verily, verily. Okay, And nowadays, the kind of common thought is that if you have to tell me that what you're saying is true before you tell it to me, it kind of makes me wonder whether or not you really believe it. Okay, Like if, if we start a sentence with honestly, okay, are, are we saying that the rest of what we were saying wasn't? Or, or if we end it with, I'm not lying, okay? Do we feel the need to emphasize it because we're afraid people don't believe it? If we listen to this and we hear Jesus say, truly, truly, we can allow ourselves to think that Jesus is somehow trying to defend what he's saying is true. And I just don't believe that's what's going on here. 
This caught my attention as I began studying for this, and so I looked up the word truly in the Greek to see what it actually meant. It means amen. Okay, it means the same in Hebrew, amen. Now, <clears throat> scholars have clarified that when you use amen at the end of something you say, like we do with our prayers, what it means is so be it. But if you use amen on the front end, what it means is truly, assuredly, certainly. So I don't think Jesus was trying to defend his believability. I think he was, he was emphasizing and drawing attention to the fact that what he was getting ready to say was incredibly important, and we needed to listen. Jesus is basically saying, hey, this is so. Hear me, this is so. He's inviting the audience in to listen very closely to what he's going to say because it's startling. You know, these days we might say, listen, if you don't remember anything else I say, then remember this. I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. So let's read the first of these three amens in verse 19. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on His own, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. So anybody who's ever reared children understands that you had better model what you want the child to do. Because regardless of whether you're trying to model it or not, you will. They are fantastic imitators. But what goes on with Jesus is far beyond imitation. At first glance, it seems a bit shocking that Jesus would say to us that He can't do anything on His own. I mean, if I were to make that same statement, it would sound like I was declaring my insufficiency. I do not believe Jesus is declaring His insufficiency. He's explaining the relationship with His Father. The two of them are one. This is a fact. There's no way to separate it. It would be completely out of character and out of the essence of who He is for Him to act separately. So in John uh, 14, we haven't got there yet, but we will, um, Philip's going to actually ask him, ask Jesus, show us the Father. In verse 8, he said, Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus' answer is startling. Philip's thinking like a Westerner. Okay, He wants to break it down into something finite that he can understand, a list. He's trying to see the Godhead as separate beings. Now, theologians have struggled with the Trinity ever since it was recorded in Scripture. And nobody's really come all the way to being able to explain it. And I'm sure not going to try to do it this morning. Some of the groups have heard um, this concept and they've rejected it. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Christian scientists, Unitarians... They all teach that Jesus is not God, that He is only God's Son. They've actually picked a side in what they see as a binary choice. It's either one thing or the other. There's only two options. Either God, Jesus, and the Spirit are three, or they are one. Our scriptures forcefully, forcefully declaring that it is not either, but instead both. Listen to Jesus' answer to Philip. Jesus said to him, 
Have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. The same truth is declared in Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. God is one in essence, but three persons. This mystery is an intentional part of Scripture, and it cannot be removed. Jesus said, this is so. And because it's impossible for him to lie, the tension remains. Many of these groups that don't believe Jesus is God also reject Jesus' deity. They teach that Jesus did not claim equality with God. And yet in our passage this morning, what we're seeing is the reaction of the Jews in Scripture is an exact contradiction to that. The fact that the Jews were so mad is what lets us know Jesus is claiming to be God. That's what had them so aggravated. This is the reason it's impossible to claim that Jesus was just a, a good man or a great teacher. Good men and great teachers who claim to be God are written off as lunatics. They need to be in a facility somewhere. Either Jesus is who He says He is, or He's a lunatic. Every human being who has ever lived, except for Jesus, is going to be faced with the dilemma of what to do with God's Son. You're not going to be able to avoid it. If you've ever wanted to know what a truly binary situation is, that's a binary situation. You will be for Him, or you will be against Him. Jesus goes on further to explain this Amen statement in verses 20 through 23. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He is doing, and He will show Him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The first thing that jumps out at me in this is Jesus' particular uh, use of the word love. You know, in English, unfortunately, uh, love is just one word. And you guys know that that can mean anything from you know, one end to the other. Now, in Greek, fortunately, there's more than one word to describe it, so we would know what they were talking about. And we're used to hearing agape, the Greek word agape for love, be used when Jesus is talking or God's talking, because that word agape is talking about the highest form of love, like the one in 1 Corinthians 13. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses the word phileo, and that means brotherly love, and it signifies a great emotional affection. God's great affection for His Son is what implies His motivation for His transparency with Jesus. This reminds me of my father inviting me in to whatever he was doing. 
because he wanted to share it with me. I became aware that my daddy didn't just love me. He actually liked me and he wanted to spend time with me. And I believe that is exactly how Jesus and the Father feel, but to a much greater degree. Jesus also points out that the works of me and my Father are identical. Giving life is an ability known only to God. Scientists continue to try to prove that life can be created without God, but thankfully I don't lie awake at night wondering if they might prove it. God made everything from nothing. And he doesn't need my help in defending his glory. The reason people honor a judge is because he holds their future in his hands. We honor the Son like we honor the Father if we understand that the Son actually holds our future in his hands. It's not an option to honor one without the other. This is the message that Jesus is going to openly declare to the Jews in chapter 8. The reason he said they didn't know God was because they didn't recognize him. If you knew my father, you would recognize me. The second of the three amens is the good news of the gospel, and it's stated just about as succinctly as I've ever heard it. Listen to the best news ever in verse 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. What was true for Abraham is true for everyone. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God spoke, Abraham heard and believed, and he was given righteousness. When we hear the voice of God, Jesus, the Spirit, what was dead in us comes to life. Let us not be confused. Our encounter must be personal with God. Knowing about God is a poor substitute for experiencing God. It's an awful trap to think that intellectual acknowledgement and agreement with Scripture is the same as encountering God. I've known a lot of people who... They knew Scripture backwards and forwards. What was missing was this love of Jesus Christ pouring out of their life. And it made me wonder. <coughs> Next week, we're actually going to come to a passage that just puts this right in our face. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says this. Talking to the Jews, he says, You pour over the Scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them. And yet, they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. He said, You're reading intellectually, but you have not personally met me. You don't recognize me. I learned a lot of stuff growing up, Sunday school and sermons and vacation Bible school. And here's what he succeeded in doing for me, okay? Information transfer occurred, and it allowed me to answer biblical questions in class. It also allowed me to make my outside look good and to exhaust myself trying to earn my own righteousness. 
Somewhere along the way, I met Jesus. I sensed him communicating that I was living a double life, and he knew that I was exhausted and hopeless. I sensed him tell me that I was his, and he would never let go. I quit thinking I needed to get saved again. How much of a relief is it not to white-knuckle the pew every time somebody gives an altar call? I finally realized that God's love and acceptance of me was not based in my performance. It was based in the performance of Christ. It dawned on me that I had to follow Him because no other option made any sense. Please don't hear me say that I made a great decision. Okay, I came to a conclusion I could not avoid and met Jesus. The gospel is so simple. God made everything. We broke it. We can't fix it. The penalty is death. But God loves us so much that He sent Jesus to die in our place. But our faith, what it's built on, is the fact that He didn't stay dead. He rose to resurrected life, defeating death in the grave and opening the door for our relationship to be restored with God so that we can live with Him now and forevermore. See, Jesus' death is what defeated sin. The penalty was paid. That portion was done, but there was still restoration of relationship that needed taking place. And His resurrected life is what does that in me. We who are in Christ have nothing to fear. This is the best news ever. That's the reason we call it the gospel. All it means is good news. Please don't ever let anybody give you something that sounds exhausting and beaten down and worn out and try to sell it off as good news. No wonder that Jesus goes on now to speak about the resurrection. The third, the third amen is both a current reality and a future promise. So look at verses 25 through 29. Truly, I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, so also He has granted to the Son to have life in Himself. And He has granted Him the right to pass judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come out. And those who have done good things to resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. If the hour, or basically what he's saying is the time, is now here, and the dead hear Jesus' voice and live, and yet there is a time coming when the physically dead will come from their graves, then Jesus has got to be referring to something more than physical death. The, world, the lost in this world are spiritually dead. I used to be spiritually dead. I can't make spiritual decisions when I'm spiritually dead. There is no way to make a decision. Jesus has to move first, and He did. He speaks life into us, and our hearts are changed from stone to flesh. 
and His Spirit inhabits us, and we are irrevocably adopted into God's family. Jesus is declaring that when we come to believe, (coughs) we come to life and we begin living with Him now. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we will all physically die. But there will be no interruption of the life that is truly life in Him. Closing our eyes in this realm just means we're going to open them in His presence. Jesus is the perfect judge because He is the Son of Man. Notice that 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 title is what was used here. The Son of Man. Why does He say this? Because He's still fully human in His resurrected form. And He always will be. His wounds and His hand and His feet and His side are now permanent scars, gloriously pointing to His sacrifice on the cross. He experienced our life's troubles and pains. And that's why He is our merciful and faithful high priest. One reason His judgment is just is because He suffered just as we do. Now a day is coming when Jesus' voice will cause all the physically dead to come out of their graves and face their eternity. Those who are spiritually alive will experience a resurrection to life in a new resurrected body. Now, I can't explain all this, all right? But I really do believe from Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians and the words of Jesus to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I do not believe that we die and lie in some sort of soul sleep. We're not going to hang out in unconsciousness until we meet the Father. I believe that in the passage, Jesus is referring to the physical resurrection when we will inhabit our resurrected form. Those who died physically while still rejecting the Lord will face a resurrection of condemnation. This is a hard truth, and a lot of people stumble on it. And this is a truth that is so far above my pay grade, I can't help you here. I just know that I trust the God who loves me. And when people ask me questions that I can't answer, like what happens to the people that have never heard, and what happens to the people who have grown up in a different religion, I don't know. Okay, I know that I trust God. And I'm going to have to leave that one in His hands. In verse 30, Jesus anticipates the argument that's going to come when He says this. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. There is no selfishness in Jesus' judgment. Jesus is doing exactly what He sees His Father doing. And He says, if you had believed Him, you would believe Me. Jesus, Jesus is not seeking His own will, but the will of the Father. And in the end, everyone 
from the worst to the best, okay, everyone is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I grew up kind of thinking that they were going to be forced to, you know, like somebody's going to come put a hand on their shoulder, some big angel or whatever, and press them down onto their knees and say, confess. That's not at all what the Bible's saying. Those who reject Him are going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they're going to be forced in themselves to confess something they have been trying so hard to deny. They're going to come to this stark realization that it was true. And when they do, there will be no option. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus personally, listen... My exhortation to you is not to try harder to believe. You cannot bootstrap this. You cannot discipline yourself into it. What you can do is you can realize where you are. It's not a choice we can make like we're down at Walmart trying to choose which brand we want. Jesus is not counting on us to look at all the options and then choose wisely. That's not what's being asked. What he's being asked is for us to realize, I'm helpless, and I'm hopeless, and I can't do anything about it. I've tried, and I have failed miserably, and I'm ready to hand it to somebody who can. If it was just a wise choice on our part, then I believe that's what God would have told Jesus. When Jesus asked, was there another way? In the Garden of Gethsemane, God's silence spoke the truth. No, there is not another way. You must do this for them or they are hopelessly and forever lost. Not my will, but yours be done. He's inviting us to come... <coughs> contemplate the fact that Jesus moved first. While you are a person running from Him and rejecting Him and His Lordship, while that was going on simultaneously, He died for you. He didn't wait for you to come to your senses and seek Him. He's been pursuing you. If you find that this is resonating within yourself this morning, it's because Jesus moved first. We would love to talk with you about that. The Father wants us to go to work with Him, helping you to follow Him. Now this passage is focused on two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. But if we look closely, we also see the Spirit. When we believe and we pass from death to life, in some crazy way that is beyond my ability to explain, we actually enter into this perfect relationship of the Trinity, which they have known forever. We actually are invited in to be a part. When Jesus, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And what's just as amazing is. God actually fellowships with His own Spirit that He's already put inside of me. So listen, Jesus does nothing by Himself. 
Hearing and believing His Word is what causes us to pass from death to life. And Jesus' voice has and continues to raise the spiritually dead. And one day, He's going to physically raise everybody to face judgment. Now, as Jesus followers, we treasure these truths for what they mean about our eternity. But I want to challenge you this morning to also examine what does it mean about my life right here, right now? If we miss this, we're missing out on huge blessings. If Jesus can do nothing by Himself, why in the world would I ever try to do anything by myself? If we've passed from death to life, are we living in the peace and freedom? Or are we still trying to earn it? If Christians will all face a judgment for the determination of the rewards that God wants to give us, then how are we using our time and our gifts and our resources to accomplish those good works that He said He had prepared in advance for us to do? Knowing these truths intellectually is of some value. But experiencing them in your daily life is eternally valuable. I want us not to be satisfied with head knowledge. Press into God until your heart experiences His truth. <laughs>